0: Acts chapter 9 is where we are as we continue to work through um, the book of Acts. And we come to um, the most famous conversion story, perhaps in all of human history the conversion of Saul to Paul. And I'll just say so I don't forget um, the the count this morning is going to be about a man named Saul, whose name is later changed to Paul. And I'm not going to be able to keep that straight. So Saul and Paul, are the sa- they are the same person, and I'm going to just use the names interchangeably. Most likely, I'll probably use Paul uh, throughout because I'm more used to that. So just, just to make sure there's no confusion, don't fuss at me. Uh, I know his name is Saul in the text. He's not Paul yet, um, but yeah. All right, Acts chapter 9. Here, God's Word, we read through verse 31, so bear with me as this is a lengthy reading. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is the early name that they gave to Christians, uh, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. he was without sight and neither ate, ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, but they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the prophets learned this, or the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And finally, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Verse 1. Verse 1. Begins this way, and still breathing threats, still breathing threats. Paul is antagonistic to the church, and yet what we find at the end of this passage, he is a dramatically changed man. What I want you to see as we begin this morning in the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2 and 3 here, is just how unbelievably and utterly predisposed Saul or Paul would be towards receiving and following Jesus. If there was a man who was more predisposed to being against Jesus, you probably couldn't find it. In, in intellectually, religiously, emotionally, in all his ways of his life, he had no reason to follow Jesus. He had no reason for there to be a transformation in his life. Just think about who Paul or in his in Saul's um, biography a little bit, and in who he was. He was, um, a, he was a student under a man named Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Now, Gamaliel was a renowned rabbi. He was the grandson of a, a very, one of the most famous rabbis in um, Jewish and Israelite history named Hillel. In fact, there was a whole tradition of um, how you understand the Old Testament law based on Hillel, and this is his grandson. He was the elite of the elite in biblical studies, and Saul spent much of his life Training under and under Gamaliel and being taught how to read the Bible and how to essentially be a lawkeeper and a lawyer for God's law, and he was trained to be a learned Pharisee. And you have to understand who the Pharisees are. We we often have this word Pharisee, in which we that's usually how we refer to somebody as a hypocrite now, but they were more than simply just hypocrites. These are guys who had somewhat kind of earned their badges. They were the zealous of the zealous. They were the strict of the strict. You know how there's different kind of um, monks within the Roman Catholic Church? There's our Augustinian monks, and there's Benedictine monks, and there's Carthusian monks. And then there's this group called Trappist monks. Normally, when we think of Trappist monks, we think of Belgian beer. But actually, the Trappist monks are known for being the most strict. In fact, if if you ever were to see the name of a Trappist monk, you'll see these four letters, which stand for this— Order of the sisters of the Strict Observance. Those four letters would follow any name of a Trappist monk. In other words, what those four letters are communicating is this. All the other monks out there who live a rather strict life, wouldn't you say, they look at the Trappist monks and they go, those guys are strict. That's who the Pharisees are. This is who they were. They were the elite academic and religious leaders. And here's what I want you to see. Everything about the mental infrastructure and the worldview infrastructure of Paul rejects Jesus. If he accepts the premise that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, it dismantles his worldview. If he accepts the premise that the God who was on Mount Sinai who gave the law, Yahweh, I am who I am, came to earth as a peasant Jewish man and died for our sins and rose from the dead, that would destroy his worldview. It would explode it. It would radically change it. It will rewire everything he has learned. It would intellectually go against everything he has believed. But not only just that, not just emotionally or intellectually and religiously, but also emotionally. Look at who Paul is and saw and how he views Jesus and the Christian. Luke gives us, oddly interestingly enough, in all of Acts, we actually see Paul's testimony given three different times. This time in the the voice of Luke, the narrator, and two other times Luke will give it to us in Paul's voice as he articulates his testimony in various courts. But what we see is what we see in all three accounts, one detail that comes out, both in Luke's account here in chapter nine and in Paul's accounts later on in Acts, is that Paul is an angry, furious man. He wasn't just trying to annoy and be a pain in the side of the early Christian church. He hated them. Listen to what Paul says about himself in Acts 26 verse 11. He says, "And I punished them, speaking of the Christians, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and here's how he describes himself. and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In other words, for Paul, it wasn't enough that they, ra- they persecuted him and they left his city. No, no, he's, and They didn't just leave his city. They left Israel. Damascus is not in Israel. It's in Syria. He he leaves the country to go find these guys. He gets special permission to drag these guys back into the country so they might persecute them, throw them in jail, and even kill them. He is a raging, angry man, and he is spewing threats. That's how it even begins in chapter 9. It's interesting, the the commentators on the language here for this word raging fury, it is is a very rare used word in the Greek language. But literally what it means is he has the rage of a wild beast. That a wild beast, the way it ravenously just eats its prey after taking it down. That is the language used of Paul of his emotional state. He hates Jesus. And he hates his church. And that's where we are in verse 1-2. And by the end, where are we? And what happens with Paul's life? By the end, this man who's so full of hatred and fury for Jesus and his followers is a man who becomes the shepherd of Jesus' sheep. He is a man so utterly and absolutely changed that he has gone from God's enemy to now being the world's most famous ambassador for the glory of Christ. He becomes the world's most pronounced theologian and probably remains so today. That much of the theology of the Christian church comes from reading this man's writing. This, this is called conversion. That when you are going in one direction and everything about your life is going in that direction, and boom, you're going in that direction. That's conversion. Now, here's the question. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, the answer is it's not by Paul. Because we've seen everything about Paul, right? When Paul gets converted, Paul's on his way to kill people and to imprison Christians. He he wasn't he wasn't going, you know what? I think I'm gonna get to and maybe God will i I think I'm gonna kill some people, but maybe I'll get saved today. Maybe I'm searching for Jesus. No. What happens? God happens. Conversion occurs because of what God does. And that's what I'm gonna look at this morning. What happens in conversion? What does God do to convert us, to change men and women? I want to look at four things about what God does to convert us this morning. Now, there's a lot of different stuff that God does to convert Paul. Some of them are unique to Paul, right? Like, it is not a normative experience that God shows up and shines a bright light in your face, and you get knocks you off a horse, So, right? So none of us are looking for that experience as part of conversion. But there are elements, principles that we can draw here, I I'll draw out four. Conversion Conversion occurs because God, first and foremost, he pursues. God pursues. And we might even say, even more beautifully, God pursues enemies. God pursues those who are running away from him and running against him. Conversion doesn't happen because we choose God. Conversion happens because he pursues us. Saul, over and over again, attributes in, throughout the Gospels, throughout Acts and then we always see throughout Paul's own writings is he attributes his conversion and not to himself in one little bit but entirely to God's work in him. He says this, I'm just kind of quote just a few things. He says, it pleased God to reveal his son in me. God took the initiative according to his own will and pleasure, he said. It said Christ took hold of him or it says he seized him. This is the language of Jesus came and arrested Paul. Thus, it was God's grace, God's pursuing grace that came after Paul, that arrested him, that shone in his heart and swept him into his life like a flood. And this is the experience of those who come to know Jesus. They've experienced God's incredible pursuit of them. C.S. Lewis talks about this so articulately that when he was an atheist literature professor at Oxford, one of the things he writes about after he'd come to know Jesus and come to faith he writes about how God had, he realized that God had been pursuing him the whole time. He says this: He says that I was the most dejected, reluctant convert in, convert in all of England, drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful and darting my eyes in every direction, looking for a chance to escape God. And but then he writes this: "But yet God's relentless pursuit of me is like that of the great fisherman seeking the fish like the cat chasing a mouse, like a pack of hounds closing in on a fox, and like a chess player maneuvering him into a disadvantageous position until he concedes checkmate. But this is how God pursued him. And this is the beautiful truth of how conversion happens. Conversion happens not because we go after God, but because he pursues us. Jesus came, why? To seek and to save the loss Was Saul going to a Billy Graham conference? Did Saul join in with Jesus and say, no, I'm going to go check out this Jesus guy? No, Saul didn't decide for Jesus. Jesus decided for Saul, and this is a comforting thing because maybe, just maybe, the hound of heaven is after you. See, in John 10, Jesus says that no man comes to the Father unless the God the Father draws him. And in Romans 3.10, it says that no one seeks after God. No one You know who's included in no one? Everyone. We don't try to find him. He finds us. The first reaction, even, we see this all the way back from when sin begins, right? Adam and Eve, they sin against God. God comes in the garden. Adam, Eve, what's their response? They run. They hide. And we have been running from God, and we have been hiding from God ever since. I like to play hide-and-go-seek with my kids, right? It's, it's a normal kind of pastime. That's what you play with little kids. And my kids, they're getting. They're, Lyle and Kate are like five and seven, so they're starting to get to the point where they can have some pretty good hiding places in the house, and that's great. I mean, I'm so happy with their skill, their creativity with the spots that they choose to hide in. But you know what? Guess who's undefeated in hide-and-seek? <laughs> Moi. It doesn't matter how good their hiding spot is. Daddy's going to find them. And that is the truth about our heavenly father. He always finds those he seeks. We have been pursued. His pursuit is relentless. He is not distant. But we, see, we see it in Jesus, right? He pursued you to such a degree that he sent his son to get low, to get down in the dirt and down in death to pursue you. The pursuing love of God goes into the hearts of hostile men. He finds them and he wins them. So we have a pursuing God, the God who leaves the 99 to find the one. So conversion happens first because God pursues. Second, conversion occurs because God confronts. When God finds you, when God seeks you, when he pursues you and he catches you, it can be kind of painful, though, because he confronts you. But he confronts you with two people. First, God confronts Paul, we'll see here with who Jesus is. It's the first person God confronts Paul with. Verse three, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting him? me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the answer is, I am Jesus. Saul thought he knew who God was. He thought, for example, that God could never become a human being. He thought that God would never set aside the temple and the sacrifices. He thought, for instance, that he thought he knew who God was. He thought he, that Christians had to be wrong, and that's why he was so zealous about persecuting them and throwing them in jail. But what we have here is a complete confrontation is that God comes and confronts all that Paul and Saul or Saul believes about who God is, and he shows them who the God really is. See, this is often who we are in our lostness, we are a people who have created a God of our own making, a God who is merely usually a projection of ourselves. A God you have made. And the problem is that God can't help you. And by the way, that God will never convert you. That God will not question you or challenge you, can't lift you up, and can't make you more than you are, because that God is merely, merely a hologram of you. You see, if God have, has made it's really just something that's made by you, then that God can't actually convert you. He can't change you. But this God is greater. And one of the marks of conversion is you begin to run into the God who is. Not the God of your own making, not the God that you want, not the God that you have constructed, but the God who is. The God who took on flesh and became man. Man the God who is fully God and fully man, the God who ruled and reigned, the God who, who died and rose again, who now sits on a throne. Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. He says, I am Jesus. And you see that the one of magnificent light, the one who speaks from heaven, is Jesus. It's hard to imagine how these words would have struck Paul. Paul knew Jesus. We don't know if they met or they talked But Paul is most likely, he's spending his formative years in Jerusalem at the very same time that Jesus has a ministry near Jerusalem. Jesus is a prominent figure. He knows about Jesus. And even if that's speculative, of course, that's most likely. But even if that isn't true, we know know what Jesus taught. That's why he's persecuting the Christians, because they're coming and teaching what Jesus taught. And they're saying, this is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus taught. And he's saying, he knows about who Jesus is. By what Jesus claimed to be, that's why he's saying this is a blasphemous lie. But now Paul, the very person he's rejected, Jesus, is now face to face with Jesus. That the one of perfect glory and light, he's now giving him undeniable proof that he is living in glory and he's on the throne, reigning and ruling over the world. And this is very much in keeping with Paul's testimony throughout the rest of his life. That he said that the reason why he came to become a Christian, why he was converted, is this. It's because he saw the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Saul actually had construction, constructed a God of his own mind. He had a God he wanted. He did not have the God who was there. And so what did God do? God came and knocked him over and said, look at me. Look at me, look at me. I am the captain now. That wasn't in the notes. He says, no, I am the Lord, and I am reigning, and I am ruling, and you're going to look at my lights. And I'm going to strike you down with it. This is what happens in conversion. You come face to face with the God who is, not the God of your own making. And when you're getting converted, you sense that God's coming at you. You get a sense of who he really is. And guess what? (laughs) When that God, the God who converts, the God who is, unfortunately, that God starts to tell you things not only about himself, but about you. You see, God not only confronts Paul with who Jesus is, God confronts Paul with who Paul is. What's he say? God confronts Paul with the reality that Jesus is the resurrected and reigning Lord, and then he says, What? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul is confronted with the fact that Jesus is God, and that he's persecuting, persecuting Jesus and persecuting all that Jesus loves. He is a persecutor of God. That's a bad moment. That's an uh oh. That you just made an enemy with the wrong person. You've messed with the wrong guy. And really quick, as a side note, this is beautiful. That Jesus would see himself so much, so intimately and connected to you and I, that he was saying here that when you persecute my church, you persecute me. That when they have joy, I have joy. When they have sorrow, I have sorrow. But that's a beautiful truth for those who love Jesus, but for those who are persecuting God's church, this is an awful and terrifying truth that Paul is having to come to face with, that he is persecuting the Lord of glory. You see, part of conversion is being confronted with the weight of your sin. It's being confronted with who God is and then being confronted with the fact of, oh no, I have sinned against that God, this God. I am in deep trouble. Remember what... what what David experiences in Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance. Who does he say he sinned against? Uriah? Bathsheba? No. It says in Psalm 51, it's against you and you only have I sinned. In our membership vows here as a church, the first membership vow is this. You acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner in the sight of God. Conversion, conversion occurs when God confronts you with your sinfulness in light of his holiness and in light of who he is. And perhaps this is speculative. But I want you to see this. Perhaps in Paul's blindness, there's further truth of our identity, of our reality, and Paul's reality as well. What happens? Paul sees the light, and he goes blind. He goes blind, and perhaps in his physical blindness, he's becoming to realize that he has been spiritually blind all this time. And what he needs is to be awoken, to be able to see rightly. I don't think Paul's blindness is punitive by God. I think it's disciplinary. I think it is... It is, it's saving him. It's revealing to him that he has been blind spiritually. Oddly enough, you know, Paul, Paul comes to a place of brokenness, right? He has to be led by his hands, by the soldiers into Damascus. He comes to a place of utter weakness before the Lord. That isn't who Paul is, right? Paul is a man who, he, he would have thought everybody else in the world is wrong. On spiritual matters, he is the king. He knows better than everybody, Right? He thinks he's not spiritually blind. And what God reveals to him is, <laughs> those who sometimes think that they are the least blind are the blindest bats out there. See, that's what God does. You see, there's ways to be, there's two types of blindness we could look at. There's irreligious blindness, which is the sense that you've, you're blind because you've rejected God entirely. And you said, I wanna be in control of my life. You're, yeah, I'm gonna lead my own life. But then there's also a religious version of blindness where you think you can be good enough to to win God's approval, when you think you have all the right answers, that's Paul's blindness. Paul writes about this very idea that without Christ, we are spiritually blind. We cannot see. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Paul writing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then he goes on and gives good news. For God who said light, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the what? The face of Jesus Christ. Conversion is when you come face to face that you have been blind but now you see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what conversion is. So As a challenge, have you come to a place where you recognize that you're spiritually blind? Have you had this experience in your life that you realize, "I, I don't have the answers. I can't save myself. I am weak, and I am desperate. I must cry out for the Lord. How do blind men get saved? Well, for them, salvation is seeing, right? Conversion is to go from blindness to sight. And we sing about that all the time, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, the beautiful truth is not only does God come and pursue us, he confronts us, but he doesn't leave us in a place where we're just going, oh no, my sin is an affront to the glorious face of God. To our third point, he says, This God comes to embrace us. God comes to embrace us. That's how conversion occurs. Isaiah 9 2 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Conversion is this realization that I am worse than I ever dared dream, but He is more gracious than I ever imagined. And He displays that graciousness in embracing us. Conversion occurs because God embraces us. Verse 17 through 19, you see it here. So Ananias departed. After God calls him, gives him this vision, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. What does Ananias do when he enters the room? It's profound. What does he say? What does he call Paul? Brother. Brother. What does that mean? And what does he do? He doesn't just call him brother and chit-chat with him. It says he lays his hands on him, and he prays for him. Listen, have you ever had anybody lay their hands on you and pray for you? There's nothing magical about it. If anyone's ever laid your hand, you know it's not magic. But there is something profound about it. There's something very special about having someone lay their hands on you while they pray for you, because it's giving a physical, physical experience, a physical manifestation of God's embrace and God's touch on your life. That God is coming down and invading. This is an embrace. He's calling him brother. What is that? That's familial language. Saul, the one who persecuted, Ananias, the one who's afraid to even go see him, calls him brother. We are brothers, then who is our father? God is. Can you imagine how what music these would have been to Paul's ears? Three days he sat in the dark. Three days I saw the glory of God. I realized the depth of my depravity. Three days I wept and prayed before the Lord. He fasted and prayed, it says. And then here's the words he hears. Brother, brother. To be welcomed into God's family. That's that's the beautiful truth of the gospel. Is that God comes in, he takes arch enemies, and he makes them sons. He makes them sons, he makes them friends. You see, if the Messiah didn't come and lay down his strength to pursue us, the weak ones, then we couldn't proclaim this gospel. But Jesus dies on the cross for his enemies. That's what he comes to do. That's the reason why when Paul when Ananias comes in, he puts his arms around Saul and he calls him brother. He's saying, Saul, rest in my arms. He's saying, Saul, this is the gospel that you who were once running from God are now embraced by God. You are the Lord's. So, my question for you this morning is have you experienced the embrace of God? It's part of the conversion experience. Some of you are prodigals, Some of you, you may, and you probably know maybe more that you need the embrace of God. You, do you religious people know you need the embrace of God? Some of you have sat for years, and you know the truths about Jesus, but you've never experienced this embrace. There's this beautiful scene, and we began the year in the, uh, the story of the two brothers, often known as the prodigal son, in which what we see there when the prodigal comes home, the father runs out and does what? It says he embraces him and kisses him. I'll read it. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, he wrote a 20-page sermon on those two words. You think I preach for a long time. My sermons are eight pages, 20 pages on the embrace and the kiss of God. To be embraced by God is this. It's to be experience the in manifest way to feel the love of God for you. Now, you who were once his enemy is now his child; that are now loved. Can you imagine this? Paul, he's just realized he's persecuting God, persecuting Jesus, and now he experiences full reconciliation. Now, there's a story of a man who is unfaithful to his wife, and he was going home to face her wrath. He was going to go home and confess. He assumed that his marriage would be over; that he was going to confess of his adultery. Of his affair and that she would leave. But the immediate problem was that maybe, maybe she was going to kill him. And so, as he sat on the couch and in shame, he confessed his sin to his wife. And he said, You have, and she says to him, though, and this is what God says to us, to the Pauls, those who persecute him. She said, This, you have hurt me so much, and I am so angry with you, but you are my husband, and we'll get through this. And then she kissed him. The man said, that kiss, that embrace changed my life. You ever experienced this kind of love, this kind of embrace? Perhaps, perhaps you've been a, a rebel. Perhaps, perhaps you've been a Pharisee like Paul. Would you, listen, you can't make God give you that embrace. But you see, here's what I'd, I'd ask you to do. Would you plead Plead with God to experience that embrace. You've never experienced that. Or if you've forgotten what it's like to be kissed by God, would you plead for it? Do you see what Paul, Paul for three days, it says he fasted and he prayed. He comes face to face with the glory of God, and his response is to plead for that God to have mercy on him. Would you pray these prayers? But for those of you who've experienced the embrace of God, got a word for you that are who might be Ananias. You see, the embrace of God is most often felt through the community of believers. You see, Paul's experience is God's embrace here through Ananias. And then as we saw at the last chapter, I'm not going to reread it or go over it again, but we see that when Paul, a couple years later, he goes to Jerusalem, and Paul enters Jerusalem and wants to join the church, and what's the response? A uh, no. We're scared of you. I'm sorry, we can't, we can't handle having you here. How does he enter into the church? Because a man named Barnabas goes over to Paul at grace risk and puts his arm around him and says, come on, Paul, you're coming to church with me. I'm gonna vouch for you. Ananias, at threat for his life, says, come on, Paul, I'm gonna lay my hands on you. I'm gonna pray for you. There is an urgent need today for modern day Ananiases and Barnabas's. Those who would say, you know what, I don't really care what the church people think. I'm going to go get that neighbor. I'm going to go get that person. I'm going to bring them to church. And they may not smell right, and they may not look right, and their life probably won't be pretty yet, but I'm going to put my arm around them, and I'm going to welcome them. That I'm going to be the means of them experiencing the kiss and the embrace of God the Father. You understand, this, is, this seems so rote, we do it so often. But when we have people come up here and line up and give membership vows, and, and we as a church accept them, do you understand how, how amazing that is? To have people to get up here and say, I am a sinner and I am lost without God. And then to have a church come up to you, to have elders say, your profession of faith, that we see in you, we see Jesus in you. We desperately need that. You see, the vast majority of the people who walk in here on a Sunday morning and who give membership vows from time to time in our church are people who have stories like Paul's. They come into church and they come into a profession of faith with guilt and shame over their sin and over their past. And for the church of Jesus Christ to say, you are my brother and you are my sister, is a means of God's church saying, we embrace you, brother." With all of your lostness and all of your brokenness of the past, we embrace you. And so we need Ananias and we need I mean, We need Barnabuses. Most often, this embrace comes through someone you know. For many of you, this story, we often think of the person who walked up to somebody's dorm. And that, that's the stories that we hear. The vast majority of the time, it's a friend. It's somebody you were dating. It's a mom and a dad. It's a spouse who forgave you. Understand this. This call to be people who embrace, who are Barnabases and Ananias's, is not an easy one. Too often I hear this. Listen, I'll pursue my spouse when, when it's safe. When I'm in an emotionally healthy place, I'll embrace them and extend to them forgiveness. No, no. God comes to Ananias and he says, you will get up. And you will risk your life, your emotional, your physical, your well being, and you will enter into their lives at great cost, possible great cost to you. God doesn't say, oh, okay, let's wait till you're emotionally healthy. You think it was very healthy for Ananias to go hang out with someone who was after killing his friends? No. And yet God calls him to do it. Would you be an Ananias and a Barnabas to pursue? Last point. Conversion occurs because God chooses. Because God chooses. (laughs) And if this sermon hasn't rankled you enough for people who came, you're like, your mama told you about going to a Presbyterian church, and you're like, I smell it. I smell it. No. Listen, God definitely chooses in regards to your salvation, but that isn't how he talks about it here. Verse 15. Lord said to him, go, this is talking to Ananias, for I have chosen him chosen it to be an instrument of mine to carry my name before the gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. When God calls us, when God chooses us, he's choosing you. He says here, he is Paul is God's chosen instrument for what? To be his ambassador. Whenever God calls you to join his family, he calls you to a work When God calls us, he calls us not to just a new family, but to a new family business, to a new purpose. And this is what we see And the great and classic text that Paul gives us in Ephesians 2 about salvation being by grace alone. He also talks about that work, that choosing work being a means of choosing us to be a means of his missional work in this world. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have seen, you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In verse 10. Is the key point. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, that we should walk in them. Why has God saved you? So that you and God can have like warm and fuzzies together? Yes, but he's also saved you so that you may be a means of being the means of conversion for other people. So that you may do obedient works, be the means of his work in this world. He's given you a task. The Lord tells Ananias that Paul will be an instrument in taking the gospel to the Gentiles and to the courts of kings. And Paul will become the greatest missionary in church history. And the world, you notice, the world is changed because of Paul. It is turned upside down because of Paul and his mission work. And you know what what Paul uses most often? This is so cool. Most often, the pattern, what we see in Paul's life and his gospel proclamation the content of that proclamation is his own conversion story. On more than, more than two occasions, but we see throughout, wherever he goes, he tells about how he was saved. And this is the beauty of God's gracious conversion for us is that your past failures does not mean that you're disqualified for future business with the Lord. Your past failures does not mean you've been disqualified to work in God's family business that your sons have been brought home and now they work the farm with the Lord, with God the Father. In fact, God's grace so often has been poured out on you so that you will be an ambassador for his kingdom in much the same places in which you experience brokenness and sin. It is often those various, the very places of the worst brokenness and the worst kind of evil of your own past and your own doing that God says, I'm gonna use that, I'm gonna use that experience and I'm gonna call you to go back there be the means of conversion for others. You see, conversion, real conversion, is, does not mean that you are no longer God's enemy fighting against him. It doesn't even just mean that you've just brought into his household, but true, full conversion means that those who were enemies are now ambassadors. Those who spoke against Jesus now speak for Jesus in this world. And I want you to see this, because we often will look at Bible stories and we'll go, that's a special case. And in some ways, Paul is a special case. You and I are not apostles. But Jesus has been doing this for all of church history. He's doing it today, and he's done it in this room, and he's doing it in this city where men and women are being converted and their lives are being flipped upside down. And with one story of those, Chuck Colson was an Ivy League educated attorney. Some of you know Chuck Colson. He rose to the top of the legal field. He became part of the White House counsel to President Richard Nixon, and he was the successful engineer of the president's landslide victory in 1972. He was the top of his profession. He was accomplished as a young man, and yet in his own testimony, he says he was utterly empty. All these accomplishments, and he still had to look at his life and say, is this all there is He was preparing for a career outside of the White House as a corporate attorney, and at the time he went to see one of his friends. He was obviously under a lot of scrutiny because of the Watergate scandal, and in fact, he was the first of Nixon's various cronies in the White House who went to jail for his connection to Watergate. But he went to see a friend in the midst of this, this friend, and he spent some time with this, this man who used to be a business partner. And he spent some time with this guy, and he realized that this guy was very, very different. And he said, what is different about you? And the man said this, I have put my faith in Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and it has changed my life. And Colson, in his own testimony, said, I wasn't from the South. I was from New England. I didn't talk like this. That kind of religious language wasn't, that made me uncomfortable. But sometime later, th- this conversation with this friend kind of nagged at him. So he went back to his friend's house sometime later, and he asked him, and he said, explain about this Jesus. And his friend shared with him the gospel and gave him a book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and read parts of the book to him. And Colson said, I'll think about this. And Colson left the house that night. He got in his car, and he began to drive down the road. But then he said something bizarre happened. He was so overwhelmed suddenly by his emotions that he had to pull off the side of the road, and he said that he wept for an hour. He said he sat there, and he was thinking, this doesn't happen to me. He said, I was a Marine Corps captain. I don't cry. I was the tough guy of the Nixon White House. This wasn't supposed to happen to me. I'm not supposed to cry. And he said he felt like, as he kind of thought about his tears, he said, surely... Right now I feel all this, but surely tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be embarrassed by this display of emotion. But he said it wasn't what happened. He said he woke up the next day and he felt renewed and he felt like he had never felt in his entire life. The story of Chuck Colson is beautiful because it reflects so much of the story of Paul. You see, this Slate magazine, a number of years ago, by a writer named David Poults, was doing a biography on Colson, and he said this that Colson was Richard Nixon's hard man. He was the evil genius of an evil administration. Colson himself later wrote that he was valuable to the president because of this, because he was ruthless in getting things done. And the chief of staff for, Coul- for Nixon's White House, H.R. Haldeman, who you, many of you might re- recognize that name, described Colson as the president's hitman. In fact, so you may not even know this, but Colson was instrumental in, in, uh, in what was, became a very devious and ruthless plot to raise up union workers to take um, rebar pipes and hats and beat up protesters in New York City the day after the Kent State shootings. Seventy people went to the hospital because he brought it about. This man, this man with all his evil genius, this man with all his, his ruthlessness, this man is saved. He goes to jail because of his connection to the Watergate scandal. He, is, he received the Lord Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And what does God do with Chuck Olson's life? Chuck Olson comes out of jail and he starts something called Prison Fellowship International, the means of seeking justice. Some of you love justice. So it begins to see justice about, seek justice for the way prisoners were treated and the conditions in which they lived to rehabilitate them. But not, not only that, but thousands of upon thousands, upon thousands come to know Jesus through that ministry because of this man who God converted. The beautiful truth is this. It it doesn't just happen to superstars. You see, it happens to people like Ananias. Do we ever hear about Ananias ever again? No. But what happens? Because God converted Ananias, and Ananias was the means of embracing Paul, what happens? The world has changed. God is a converting God, and he changes his people. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, the story of salvation is not a story that goes like this. I was really bad, and then then I decided not to be bad. And I went to Jesus, and I told him how bad I was, and I tried to be good. But instead, Lord, the story of all of our lives is that we are running from you as fast as possible, but we couldn't outrun you. And so, graciously, Father, I pray for those in this room who have maybe never experienced the, the embracing love of Jesus, who have never been confronted with the glory of Jesus Christ and confronted with the depths of their own sin. And so, graciously, Father, I pray that you'd invade. Or it may not come in a shining light But, Lord, whether it's through a friend or through reading a book, through hearing a sermon, that, Lord, the beautiful face of Jesus, the Holy One of God, would invade their lives. And that, Lord, they would experience your pursuit leading to an embrace. And then, Lord, for those of us who have been embraced by you, I pray that you take us the full length of conversion and make us people who proclaim the name of Jesus wherever we go. We ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus' name. Amen.